In Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, it says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. One of the things that I bought a couple of uh, recently is lights. Um, I picked up this one not too long ago down at Pokenhorns. It's kind of a handy little thing. It just recharges by plugging it in through a USB port. It has a little stand. And when I'm working on things like uh, uh, up in an attic space or something like that or in other dark areas, even underneath a cabinet. And this is kind of a handy little thing. It's pretty bright. It does uh, have a dimmer switch. You can dim it down. You can kind of fold it like this so it angles in different directions and stuff. It's a, it's a pretty handy little thing. 1995 years at Pokenorns. No, I'm just kidding. I don't remember what I think it was a little more than that. <laughs> Mention my name. No, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, you won't get any break for mentioning my name. It's a handy thing, but I, I found that when it goes dim, then I have to plug it back in and wait for it to charge up a little bit before I have the light. So recently I bought a couple of these, and it's because I can change out my batteries. I have a lot of these batteries because I have a lot of this kind of tool. And uh, so I picked up this one. This one also is very bright. If I'm working in a whole room that's pretty dark, I just take out two of these, turn them on, point them in different directions, set them on the floor, and it lights the room up very nicely. Also directional. I'm looking forward to using it to find gear next year. As we track them down. This is a handy thing. As much as I joke with customers sometimes and tell them, well, actually, if I do it in the dark, it'll probably turn out better. Uh, it's really not the case. Having light to be able to see makes all the difference in the world when you're trying to navigate your way around a job site and to do something, work on a task that you're focused on. Well, you know what? Navigating around the world is no different. And that's what God wants, His lights shining brightly in this world. And He's made it very clear that as He sent His Son into the world to be the light of the world, and remember the focus of Ephesians is us living in Christ. When we put our faith in Christ because of what He did for us on that cross and through the resurrection from the dead, the forgiveness of sins that we receive and the righteousness that's credited to our account, we are His lights in the world. And He wants us to do exactly that. He wants us to be able to shine bright. He wants us to be able to be directional and point into the darker places of the world. And the darker the world gets, the more important it is for us to shine as lights. As bright as those lights are, within this room where it's very lit up, they don't make a lot of difference. But I'll tell you, you get in a dark area, you get in an attic space or something like that, and that light makes all the difference. Boy, does it stand out. That's the same with us. As our world experiences more and more darkness, we are to be that kind of light that is willing to stand out in this world and to shine for Jesus Christ. Well, as we look through the book of Ephesians and come to this point in chapter 5, that's exactly what he's encouraging us to do. And remember, last week we looked at walking in love. This week he tells us to walk in light. What does it mean to walk 
in light. Well, the first thing that we want to look at as we consider walking in light is the command. That's what he gives us, this command of how we're to walk. Now, as he begins the passage, remember it, it overlaps a little bit. We talked about that last week with walking in love. He told us to walk in love in the first two verses and then he started to look at this behavior, uh, the sexual morality, impurity, covetousness that was in contrast. Because remember this verse 3 starts with the word but. So it was in contrast to the love that God expects from us and the love that God has for us. The contrast for that, he begins to describe these actions of sexual morality, impurity, covetousness, which he will repeat a couple times. That then flows into this idea of walking in light. Just as those three actions show a contrast to the love of God, they also show the description of the darkness in the world that we're supposed to be the light in. He lists these three things. He says, but sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. And then later he repeats it again after he elaborates on him a little bit. And then he refers to it as the darkness. And he says, but we are light in the Lord. And so we need to walk as children of light in this very dark place. Society seems to be more and more and more focused on sexual things and more and more tolerant of sexual perversions that are in the world. And you know what? Everything that we see today was accepted in some form or another in the city of Ephesus back at the time of the Apostle Paul's writing. So he's really not commanding us to do anything he wasn't commanding them to do. He was telling them to let their light shine brightly and to abstain from these behaviors that were very commonplace in their society. And you know what? No matter how accepted these behaviors become within our society, Scripture, God, will always call us to be countercultural, to always be righteous in the face of unrighteousness, no matter how prevalent the unrighteousness becomes within our communities and within our experience. As we consider that this morning, what exactly is it talking about? We, we brushed on it a little bit last week as we recognize that the word sexual immorality is a translation of the word pornea. And that word pornea is, it just means any sexual activity that's, that takes place outside of the marriage covenant. The only place that sex is sanctioned and actually encouraged is within that marriage covenant. And so any place outside of that is what we would call sexual morality. You will find more like if somebody is involved with somebody else's wife or husband, then there's more specific words for that kind of thing, used like adultery and that kind of thing. But this word pornea just kind of covers all of it. And in fact, uh, we, we mentioned last time that pornea obviously sounds familiar, like pornography. Um, that's what our word pornography came from. Pornea, meaning sexual morality. Graphe, meaning to write. But not only does he talk about sexual morality, he says, and all impurity. Impurity is actually even a more general term. This takes it to another level, to where it doesn't just refer to sexual activity, but it, it would refer also to like impure thoughts fantasies, speech. There's 11 places in the New Testament that this word impurity is used. One of them was by Jesus, used to describe a decaying body in a tomb. The other 10 are all used within a sexual context. So in, in these two words, you know what we see is we see, we see things that men are te- have a tendency toward or a weakness for. Men typically usually struggle struggle with things like pornography and, and that kind of stuff. We're visually oriented. But we also see in these two words things that women are more susceptible to as well because within this idea of this impurity would be the fantasies that you would read about in like romance novels that are explicit. And so it really addresses entertainment that 
both men and women are susceptible to. It covers the whole gamut of these things. But then he goes on and he says into covetousness. Sexual immorality, impurity, they really go together. But covetousness, where does covetousness come into play? And some people think that, well, maybe it means a specific kind of covetousness, like coveting somebody else's body in that sense, or coveting somebody else's wife, as it even mentions within the Ten Commandments, coveting, in, but in a sexual realm. But if you read later, it goes on and identifies covetousness again and calls it idolatry. And it specifically highlights that fact that covetousness is idolatry. This is what I think it is. I don't think he's using covetousness in a singularly sexual way. But I think there is a relationship between sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness that is inherent within the sins. Now, here's, here's my explanation. When you talk about covetousness, what is covetousness? The Bible says covetousness is idolatry. You're putting something else in the place of God. You're worshiping something else above God. You have a greater desire for a possession than you do for God. And so the Bible calls that idolatry because you are saying that you're not content with whatever God has provided for you. If I covet something that somebody else has, I'm saying, God, you have not provided for me well enough as you should have provided for me as well as you provided for them. And I began to covet their possession. But you see, sexual immorality does the same thing. Because sexual immorality says, God, you have not provided for me in the way that I'm satisfied with, so I'm going to go outside of your provision to seek that satisfaction. And so you see, it's really doing the same thing. It's saying, God, you, I'm not happy in my singleness. I'm not happy in my marriage. I'm not happy in my situation. I'm not happy in what you've provided for me in the realm of sexuality. And so I'm going to go outside of your boundaries, go outside of your borders, and find fulfillment somewhere else. That's what covetousness is. I'm going to find satisfaction somewhere else. That's what sexual immorality is. I'm going to find satisfaction somewhere else other than in God. You know, any time that we seek the ultimate goal of our happiness outside of God's will, we are involved in idolatry, in the worship of other gods. With covetousness, we usually think about possessions. With sexual morality, we're talking about pleasure. But it's really the same underlying dissatisfaction with God. And then there's also the issue of if we just stop and think about what sexual immorality is and impurity and these covetousness. If we look at 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians does a pretty detailed job on laying it out for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13 through 20, it says, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. And you've got to be wondering, well, what are, you, what are you talking about now? We were talking about sexual immorality, now we're talking about eating. What is, what's the connection? Look at what the connection he's making. He's saying, look, food is meant for stomach, stomach for food. No big deal. They're all destroyed in the end. The food goes through us and it's gone. We die, the body decays, it's gone. No lasting damage, no lasting effect. But then he's going to go on and contrast that to sexuality. Because you see, that's exactly the way some people look at sexuality in our life. Just as you have an appetite for food, you have an appetite for sex. And, and whatever I need to do, it's just natural to satisfy my appetite for food. It's natural to satisfy my appetite for sex. Well, there is an appetite, a, an appropriate one that God has given to us, but it is fulfilled within that marriage covenant. Outside of that marriage covenant, it's very damaging. And that's what he goes on to describe. He says the body is not meant for sexual immorality. So he says the stomach was meant for food. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up 
by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, he shouts. For a Christian to fall to participate in this is nothing short of involving Christ in an immoral relationship because you're part of the body of Christ. And when he talks about members there, being members of Christ, he talks about us being actually part of His body. He used the word member like we talk about your finger being a member of your hand. Or, so it's talking about body parts. He goes on to say, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. Two becoming one flesh was a good thing in a marriage relationship. It's totally out of line in an immoral relationship. But yet there's still something that happens there. The two shall become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? You are not your own, for you're bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Are you going to invite that kind of sin into the temple of God? Because you are that temple. Notice what he says in this passage. He says, sexual sin is not like other sins. You know, I, I don't know how many times I've heard somebody say, well, all sin is sin. My sin's no worse than your sin. Your sin's no worse than my sin, whatever. That is not scriptural. Now, there is one sense. If you want to say that all sin will separate you from God, well, I agree with that. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden for eating the wrong piece of fruit because they rebelled against God in doing it. And they were kicked out of the garden out of the presence of God. Any sin will separate you from the presence of God. In fact, we come into this world separated from God's presence because of our sinfulness. But... All sins are not the same. When you read through the Old Testament, do all sins have the same punishment under the law? No. Some sins you had to pay something back. Some sins you had to pay a fine for. Some sins cost you your life. All sins were not the same. And Jesus definitely took the righteous requirements to a new level when He said, I'm not telling you just not commit adultery, but even if you lust after a woman, you're committing adultery within your heart. Now, does that mean that they actually committed adultery? No, it means they committed it in their heart. Would there definitely be another step up to actually commit the physical act? Absolutely. Throughout Scripture, you do not see an equality of sin. And the Apostle Paul, as he deals with it here, he says, look, sins sexually are different than every other sin. Every other sin is outside your body. When you sin sexually, you sin against your body. And, and when you go through that act of becoming one, that sexual act with somebody that you're not married to, there's still something that transpires there. In fact, commentators, we really don't know what all that means. I think the best we can do to understand it is explain that when we sin sexually, more happens to us than we even can understand. It's a very dangerous sin to participate in and requires great carefulness to stay away from it. Great fear should be within us because of it. That sexual sins were a different level than every other sin. And then if you go to like Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, it starts to deal with homosexuality. And it says that's even another step, another degree, because now it's taken the sexuality to an unnatural level. And so this idea of all sin just being sin is false. But what does the command entail? The command entails that we, he says, not even, don't even let it be named among you, not even spoken of among you, that, that this particular sin would not be something that, that anybody would ever accuse us of or that would be so foreign to our experience as Christians. In fact, he goes on when he gets to verse 12, he says, don't even speak of it. He elaborates on it even a little bit more as, as he goes on. 
He says, let there be no filthiness. Now the word filthiness is dealing with speech and it means uh, obscenities. That we don't use any, any obscenities. He says, or foolish talk or crude joking. And so he takes this realm of sexual morality and impurity and starts dealing with it in our speech. And he's saying, look, don't even joke about this kind of thing. Don't, don't even make the foolish statements that uh, you're going to hear made around you in the culture that you're in. That's all foolishness. In fact, it's kind of interesting. The word there is, is moralagia. Logia coming from logos, which means word, and moro is a word that we get our word moron from. And so he's saying, look, the, the stupid things that you're going to hear in these filthy contexts and, and the use of obscenities and stuff, he says, do not let those escape your lips. You know, that, that's one of the things that always amazed me. I, I just think of, when I think of obscenities and I think of like swearing and stuff like that, it's, like, it's just so foolish. I think the, the, the greatest example is, is what's usually considered the worst of the words <laughs> when I think of the F word. People put that F word in everywhere. They use the F word to refer to anything. Sometimes I think it's just to put attitude in a statement or something. It's not, it doesn't even have any value as a word because it's used for everything, which means it means nothing. Otherwise, it couldn't be used so widely. And it's just, you know what it is? It's just foolish. It's just moronic. And that's what he's saying. Don't join in with the fools. We're supposed to be so separated from sexual sins that it doesn't even escape our lips. And the last uh, term that he uses there is crude joking. The word literally means something that is easily turned. And what it has the idea of is uh, sexual innuendos. When you take a statement about something and turn it to make it sexual, you give it a sexual meaning. It's It's a sexual innuendo. Don't do that. Sex is a wonderful gift that God has given to us in a way of expressing oneness within the marriage relationship. And all these things just cheapen it. It's something that's sacred and we make it profane. And that's what he's warning us against. Now, why does he warn us against it? Well, because the next part that we see of this is the we're going to focus on the consistency. What I mean by that is uh, the main reason that he gives for us not participating in those things is it's not consistent with who we are. Remember what we're being called on to do. This all goes back to the beginning of chapter 4. And it says that we are supposed to walk in a manner that is worthy, live in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And what is that calling? We've found what that calling is in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, that we are God's children, that we're set apart to Him, that we've been chosen before the foundation of the world and predestined in Him, and we are His. And we have this glorious inheritance. And He's just saying, look, live like you're who you are. In fact, I love it that all through this passage, he doesn't really question their salvation. And there has to have been some people struggling with some of these things. Otherwise, why warn them if there's no struggle? You know what? You're going to experience some struggle with some of these things, but God will give you what you need to overcome it. The struggle is not a shock. Giving in is a shock. In this passage, God uses many different ways to refer to the believers. If we go back to verse 1, remember he referred to them as beloved children, the beloved children of God. He also referred to us as saints. It's really inconsistent for us to be involved in these sexual sins if we're saints. A saint means somebody that's set apart for God. And it's not some super Christian. It's every Christian. It's everyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit comes to indwell within you, gives the power to separate from sin, and you are separated unto God. You are a saint. Now, with what the picture in your mind of what a saint is, is does saint and sexual morality, impurity... Crude joking, do do, do these mix? Do they go together? Absolutely not. And that's the point. Also in verse 8, he says we're to walk as children of light. It's like what... 
the Apostle John does in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-7. through 7. It says, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. That kind of behavior is not consistent with who you are. If you're in the light, you can't walk in darkness. If you're a saint, you can't live in sin. If you're God's beloved child, then you should be walking in the righteousness of your Father. That's who you are. And that should embolden us. That should strengthen us to be able to overcome temptations towards these kinds of sins. Because they just really don't fit with who we are. You're so much higher of a calling than to be scraping in the gutter. Well, not only does he list all the, the ways that he refers to us as believers, but there's even a more extensive list. In fact, there's eight things on the list that he uses to describe this kind of sin. He described us believers in these different positive ways as saints and beloved of God and, and, and as people of light and walking in the light. And then he makes a definite contrast. He says, don't be partnering with them. And then the them that he's referring to is he refers to them as the sons of disobedience. He says, don't get involved in the same thing they're doing. Sons of disobedience, darkness compared to sons of God, light. But then he also describes this kind of behavior, this, this sexual morality, impurity, and covetousness. He claims that these are, one, improper. Because in verse 3 he says it's, we need to do what is proper as saints. So in other words, it's improper to be involved in sexual morality and impurity and covetousness. Improper to be involved in the, the coarse joking and the foolish talk and, and those things. And then he also says uh, in verse 4, he says it's out of place. Just does not fit who you are. But then he also says, he says on one, cent, on one hand we're without inheritance in verse 5. And in verse 6 he says we are under wrath. You see, it's, it's not consistent with who we are because we've been delivered out from under the wrath of God because of what Jesus Christ did for us. But this kind of behavior signifies people that are under God's wrath. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the Son's of disobedience, therefore do not become partners with them. There's a couple of things about this kind of sin. One is if you live in this kind of sin, it's not talking about somebody that's struggling with a temptation and striving to overcome it. It's but it's talking about somebody that is living a lifestyle in this sin. He says, You are not part of the kingdom of God. I don't care what anybody else is telling you. Don't let yourself be deceived by empty words. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in the earlier part of the passage, he says the same thing. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, I love the last part of that passage. But you know what? The last part of the passage is so bright and, and, and light and encouraging because of the first part of the passage is so dark. He says, look, if you're living in any of these sins, if this describes your life, you are not part of the kingdom of God. But I love that next part. Such were some of you. But you were washed. were cleansed. 
in Ephesians, he puts it this way. He says, you used to be in darkness, but now you're light. That is the hope of the gospel. The gospel will not gloss over your sin. It will show your sin for as ugly as it is. But then it will also give you a way to turn from it. It will also give you a way to come out of that darkness and into the light. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1-8 through 8 says, Finally then, brothers, as we looked at last week, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know that the, what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. So again, he tells us in a passage dealing with the same things, God has not called us to this. And, and not to deceive ourselves, because if we reject this, we're not rejecting man's words, these are God's teachings. So we're rejecting God Himself. God gives strong commands and He really makes it beyond any shadow of any doubt what He considers to be sexual sin and how severe that is in our life. Every one of these passages says you're outside of the kingdom of God or God will avenge Himself on you. He will bring His wrath upon you for these things. In fact, even when we look at the book, the end of the book, in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8, when it's talking about those who are judged and those who get to go into the kingdom of God, not the kingdom on earth, but the final eternal state, it says in Revelation 21.8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then he says, one chapter later, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, the murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. The Bible consistently points to the fact that if we're participating in those kinds of sins, if that's our lifestyle, then that's improper. It's out of place for the children of God. If that's our lifestyle, we are not the children of God. We are the sons of disobedience. We are not those who are looking forward to an inheritance. We are those who are looking forward to wrath, who will experience the wrath of God. He goes on to describe it in verse 8. He describes this kind of activity as darkness. In verse 11, he describes it as unfruitful. In verse 12, he calls it shameful. And in verse 15, which we actually start at next week, as we move on from this into living wise, he calls it unwise. And so when you look at sexual morality in the Bible, he says it's improper, it's out of place, it's without inheritance, it's under wrath, it's darkness, it's unfruitful, it's shameful, and it's unwise. I think if you put that many descriptors in this short of a passage dealing with one activity, I think it's safe to say it's a bad thing. And that he's trying to emphasize something here. And he is trying to emphasize something because no matter what the world says, it's not just one more appetite that's like choosing what kind of food you're going to eat. This is something that God has built into our nature that if we go against this, if we, if we corrupt this, we're damaging ourselves in ways that we don't even understand. And we need to be careful. We haven't been called to this. We've been called to light. We've been commanded to light. Light is the only thing that's consistent with who we are in Jesus Christ. And lastly, there's a commission. 
Because He commissions us. And He says, I've got a mission for you. And what is that mission? To shine. As Christians, God calls us very clearly then to how we're to walk. We're not going to walk in the darkness. We're going to walk in the light. God has called you to something greater. God has called you to be in Christ. We need to live like it. How do we do that? No crude joking. What is what He replaces it with? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is saying, God, I'm completely content in what You've provided for me. So to the single person, I'm completely content with the singleness that You have me in right now, God. And so sex is off the table for me. To the married person, I'm completely content with my husband, with my wife, with God, with what You have so wonderfully provided for me. Thanksgiving. He also says the fruit of of light is found in all that is good and right and true. That's what we're to walk in. 